back, everybody. It's your girl, Jasmine Nicole, and I'm your host of Seasoned Crime. This is a weekly podcast that gives you a true crime story about a minority. I look for the stories that you probably have never heard of. If you have heard of them, you probably haven't heard the full details. These stories are the ones that deserve that additional camera time and attention, but may get overlooked because of some cases that look better to the majority race. If they aren't going to tell our stories, then we will. Stories that include minorities of all races, without any borders. Today's story takes us to the other side of the world. East Africa. Uganda, to be exact. I've, I've always had a special interest in cults. The idea of being able to get a large group of people to believe in something that normally sounds outrageous to most has always just blown my mind. This Ugandan cult was no different. Their beliefs were enough to get people to give up all of their possessions. When this cult was destroyed, many of the members ended up dead. Was the death of the members a mass suicide or a mass murder? Today, we're digging into the movement for the restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. In 1960, Paolo Kashaku said that he had a vision of his deceased daughter Evangelista, and when she came, she told him that he would end up having visions from heaven. Paolo insisted that this became a reality in 1988. He had had visions before, but this time, the visions were from Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ, and St. Joseph. He had to tell somebody about what he saw, so he told his daughter, Cordonia, and to his surprise, she advised that she herself had similar visions. At this point, he just knew that they had to spread the word and tell everyone about what the Virgin Mary had shared with them. Cordonia went all through Uganda telling anybody who would listen that they had been instructed to strictly obey the Ten Commandments and to preach the word of Jesus to avoid worldly damnation that could occur by way of the apocalypse that was going to happen on December 31st, 1999. In 1989, while spreading the word, Credonia met Joseph Kibberode, who had been a politician and a prominent member of the local Catholic community. Joseph said that he had visions of the Virgin Mary back in 1984, who had given him similar instructions. They joined together and Paolo, Cordonia, and Joseph formed the Movement for the Restoration of the Ten Commandments of God. The movement came at a time where Ugandans, they were desperate for some kind of hope that they could grasp onto. Between 1971 and 1978, Uganda was ruled by Idi Aman, who is considered to be one of the most brutal leaders in world history. The AIDS pandemic was happening, and Uganda was hit extremely hard by this. In the midst of all of this as well, between 1980 and 1986, Uganda was in the midst of the Ugandan Bush War, which is also known as the Uganda Civil War, which occurred in Uganda, and multiple rebel groups were fought, the most notable of those being the NRA. All of these things were going on within a 10-year time frame, and they brought so much doubt to the people. How could the things that they believed in all this time bring them so much turmoil? People were losing faith in the Roman Catholic Church, and that led to a lot of post-Catholic groups forming. 
the followers of the movement rapidly grew and started to include some defrocked Catholic nuns and priests. This just meant that they had been dismissed from the Catholic Church and they no longer had the closing that identified them as such. The group gained leadership from a few excommunicated priests as well. The ones who stood out were Paul Ikazir and Dominic Katarbarbu. Dominic was very well respected with a PhD from the university in the United States, which was a huge deal for people. He even sold some of his own property and vehicles to help support the community and to bring in more members. For Paul, when he was asked why he left another group and joined this movement, he said, We joined the movement as a protest against the Catholic Church. We had good intentions. The church was backsliding. The priests were covered in scandals, and the age scourge was taking its toll on the faithful. The world seemed poised to end. Paolo died in 1991, and at that time, Joseph took over as the leader of the movement. In 1992, the movement relocated to the Congo district, where Paolo had extensive properties that he left for the movement to use. Their new place was known as the Rescue Place for the Virgin Mary, translated in English. There were other homes scattered around the area that the community owned as well. These properties were used for recruitment, indoctrination, a primary school, and for worship. The members lived on site. They had their own school, and they grew pineapple and had banana plantations. Financially, they were able to survive because when members would come to the community, they were told that part of the instructions from the Virgin Mary was to sell all of their worldly possessions, which is exactly what they would do. According to Gridonia, the Virgin Mary was still speaking to her on a consistent basis through a secret hidden telephone system. When new members arrived, they were required to read the word of the movement. Their beliefs were highlighted in the booklet that they all were required to remember and be familiar with, titled, A Message from Heaven, The End of the Present Time. The movement believed that the Ten Commandments had become distorted, and it was their job to restore them to their full value. The booklet spoke to not only the importance of the Ten Commandments, but it explained how their community was following them. One commandment that the group interpreted very strongly was the Ninth Commandment, which states, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. They wanted to make sure that no one was able to break this world, so they came up with their own sign language, and mainly that's what was used to communicate with each other. So again, you're doing sign, which means everyone can see what you're saying. The movement fasted consistently, but even if they weren't fasting, they were only allowed to eat one meal on Friday and Saturday. Sex and soap were also strictly forbidden within the community. They believed that this community was similar to Noah's Ark. This group was the ship of righteousness and the sea of depravity. Predominant Catholic icons were placed throughout the community, even though the group had split from the Catholic Church. By 1997, the movement had about 5,000 members in their community. Almost everyone who lived near the community believed that they were harmless. They stayed to themselves and they didn't really cause any issues, but those thoughts started to change in 1998. A few reporters had managed to get inside the community and pose as new members, and they uncovered things that were really hard to believe. 
many of the members of the community, both adults and children, were extremely malnourished. They also saw that they were utilizing children for labor. There were even thoughts that the children that they were using were children that had been kidnapped off the street to work in this community. When all of this got out, it was reported that the group was shut down, but somehow that didn't last for long. That same year, the license for the boarding school that they owned was revoked by the Ugandan government, saying that the teachings that were being taught were against the Ugandan constitution. As time got closer and closer to the apocalypse date, members of this movement started to prepare. The leadership urged all of the members to make sure that they were on good terms and that they needed to confess all of their sins so that they could leave this world in clear spirit. They needed to sell any remaining cattle and possessions that they still owned for cheap. All work in the field ceased as well to prepare for the event. January 1st, 2000 came and went. And nothing. Everything that they were taught to believe is that the world would end on December 31st. So once days passed and nothing happened, people began losing trust and the group was starting to unravel. The followers were starting to ask questions that they weren't getting answers to and the normal payments to the church were dwindling down as each day passed. The leaders of the movement quickly spoke out. I'm not exactly sure of the reason why they gave on why the apocalypse didn't happen on the first date, but they managed to assure everyone that a new date had been set and the world was now going to end on March 17th of 2000. That day came and it was a full day celebration. The day started off with church service and they had a lot of singing and celebrating on what was about to be their transition into this new world. As day turned into night, they continued the celebration. They had planned to slaughter and roast three pigs, and they drank all the soda that they could find. According to the villagers, not too long after people arrived in, they heard an explosion, and soon after, they saw the compound was on fire. They would later find out that the windows and doors of the building were boarded shut prior to the attending showing up, so when the explosion occurred, All 530 people inside were killed. The Ugandan police quickly started investigating what had happened. They found out that a few days prior to the explosion, one of the leaders of the movement, Dominic Kataribabu, was seen buying 50 liters of sulfuric acid. The authorities had no idea that the celebration was even happening on March 17th. All of the promotion and things that they had known about had a date of March 18th, so they later believed that that was just a ploy to keep police away from the compound that night. About four days after the explosion, authorities started searching other properties, and what they found was even more alarming. Throughout the four properties along the southern Ugandan border, they discovered almost 400 dead bodies. Those bodies had either been hacked up, poisoned, or strangled. Testing determined that the people in those properties had been killed about three weeks prior to the explosion even occurring. It was also discovered that one of the leaders, Joseph Kibitere, left a note for his wife, who was not a member of the movement, asking that she take over and carry on the movement for him after he was gone, which she did not do. When all was said and done, the final death toll came to about 924 people. The biggest question that was left was, was this a mass suicide or a mass murder? 
Initially, the cops believed that this was a mass suicide by cult. One witness claimed that the members doused themselves with gasoline and then set themselves on fire. This would support the mass suicide theory. However, what made this not so likely is, how did they know that? If the windows and the doors were already boarded, then they wouldn't be able to see out or in, so there was no way that the witness could be positive of this. Other witnesses reported smelling gas first, then the explosion, then the fire, which would more support the mass murder theory. After doing numerous interviews and exams of the scene, the police determined this wasn't a cult suicide as they initially thought, but this was instead a mass murder conducted by the leaders of the movement. After the first apocalypse date didn't happen, the movement leaders were scared that the followers would revolt and start demanding their money back, so they set the new date of March with the sole purpose of eliminating people. The Ugandan government completely condemned the movement. President Yauri Museveni called it a mass murder by these priests for monetary gain. Many now believe that these were just con artists who had ran off with the money that they had swindled from their followers. As if this wasn't bad enough, it later came out that the dental records for the leaders of the movement could not be found. Due to being unable to prove their death, it is believed that there is a strong possibility that the leaders were not even there at the compound at the time of the explosion. International warrants were put out for all five of the leaders of the movement. Cults have always been an advanced part of the true crime world for me. I mean, kind of like the Pythagorean theorem in math. Like, some people get it, some people don't. I'm one of those people, like, that's way out of my range. And that's how I feel about cults. It's a part of the true crime world that I never really understood because no matter what, I just cannot wrap my head around how. Like, in this case, the thoughts of being able to get thousands of people to sell all of their worldly possessions because the Virgin Mary is speaking to a woman through a secret phone. Like, what? I, I, I just I just can't bring my head around. Like, I, I don't get it even the slightest bit. And I think that's why I'm so fascinated by them. But in a sense that they scare me. Nonetheless, this was today's highlight of the cult known as the movement of the restoration of the Ten Commandments. As usual, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Seasoned Crime. Please remember to rate and subscribe and reach out on either the Seasoned Crime Instagram page. You can email us at seasonedcrime at gmail.com and let me know what your thoughts are on the show. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Season Crime. Today's episode was researched, edited, and recorded by your host, Jasmine Nicole.